0: Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Our thinking about everything must be directed and determined solely by the revelation of God in His Word.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has more of his current series with Part 5 of Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. How would you define the word worldliness? Do you think of it as following a list of rules and guidelines that Scripture doesn't actually forbid? Or is it making sure to not do those things that are clearly against Scripture? Well, today, Tom will examine what the Apostle Paul has to say about worldliness. You may be surprised to learn that it is extremely subtle and dangerous. But why is worldliness such a threat to believers? How do you resist such a covert spiritual threat? Let's open our Bibles and join Tom now with today's message on the Word Unleashed. Today in Romans chapter
0: 12, where I invite you to turn with me again... Paul is going to address for us the issue of worldliness. Now as soon as I say that word, I almost hesitate to do so because the moment most Christians hear the word worldliness, they are tempted to fall into one of two extremes. On the one side is legalism. The moment we start talking about worldliness, there are Christians who define worldliness as doing certain things that no passage in Scripture actually forbids. They come up with their own set of rules and guidelines and they call that worldliness if people refuse to walk in those self-made commands. On the other extreme is ignorant conformity to the world. There are many other Christians who, when they hear the word worldliness, immediately defined it only as doing those things that are clearly contrary to Scripture. In other words, gross and obvious sins. And if they're not committing those, then they're not worldly. In reality, they are actually being worldly in the biblical sense and are completely oblivious to that reality. What Paul wants us to learn in Romans chapter 12 is that worldliness is extremely subtle. The influences around us can be far more powerful and evil than we can begin to imagine. And that influence comes at us not by changing at first what we do, but rather by shaping our thinking, and through that, changing our behavior. That's Paul's warning in Romans chapter 12. Let's read it again together. Romans chapter 12, we're looking at the two verses that are really the hinge between the the explanation of the gospel in the first 11 chapters and the application of the gospel in the rest of this letter. Look at it again and you follow along as I read these verses. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, As I have reminded you, the theme of these two verses is simply this, the only reasonable response to the gospel, to the salvation that you have received in the gospel, is to give yourself body and soul to God. This is really a call for a radical, total commitment of the Christian who has come to enjoy justification, a commitment to God. Now we're learning two insights about this commitment. First we discovered the grounds of a life of total commitment to God. That's the point of the first part of verse 1, and at the heart of that is the mercies of God. Then we were considering the demonstration of a life of total commitment to God. That's the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Here's what that looks like. Paul makes his appeal for a total radical dedication to God using the language of Old Testament sacrifice. First Christian, you are to present your body to God. And we looked at that in great detail over the last couple of weeks. The second exhortation comes in verse 2, we are exhorted to present our minds to God. Christian. Paul says, because of the mercies of God you have experienced, present your mind to God. Look again at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The sacrifice we owe God in response to His mercies and His salvation is not only our bodies but our minds as well. Our total selves no longer belong to us. Christ bought them. So our minds are not ours either. Now in verse 2, there's just one basic exhortation about our minds, but that exhortation is expressed in two commands. First of all, the first half of verse 2 is a negative command telling us how not to think. The second half of verse 2 is a positive command explaining how we are to think. So let's look at these two commands about our minds. Now in the interest of full disclosure, let me just tell you that we're going to get no further this morning than the first half of verse 2. So be prepared. So first of all, we're going to look at the negative command, and it's this, reject the thinking of our age. If you're going to present your mind to God, you must begin by rejecting the thinking of our age. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Now first of all, notice the word conform. The Greek word means to form something according to a pattern or to a mold. When I was a kid, I loved to build and make things. I had a large set of Lincoln logs. I had an erector set. I had a a large collection when I was younger of Play-Doh. And I remember one Christmas, my parents gave me one of these Play-Doh machines. You you crammed your Play-Doh down in the holding tank, and then if you exerted enough force on the lever, it pushed that Play-Doh out of the mold. And as it came out of the mold, it came out with the shape of the mold itself. Don't let that happen to your thinking. Be put into the, into the holding tank that the world uses and allow it to use enough force to force your mind into its shape. Now, the form of the Greek verb that's translated, be conformed here, makes several important points for us. Notice, first of all, that be conformed in Greek and in English is passive. That means you are not the one doing the conforming. You are not the primary one doing the action. In fact, you are in danger of being acted upon. Something outside of you is attempting to conform you to its shape. Notice also that be conformed is at the same time an imperative. That means that while you don't do the conforming, you are responsible to keep it from happening. And then you'll also notice, and you can't see this as well in English, it's clear in the Greek text, be conformed is in the present tense, meaning that this is an ongoing reality. This tension between an outside force that wants to shape you and your own will saying, I will not be shaped, this is a continual, constant battle. Now what's the source of this constant pressure? What are we not supposed to be shaped by or conformed to? Notice how he puts it in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Now there are two primary Greek words that are translated world in our English Bibles. The first one you're very familiar with. You've heard it, It's, it's been transported into English, it's the word cosmos. When it's used negatively in the New Testament, it is, as one author describes it, the satanically organized system that hates and opposes all that is godly. Make no mistake, Satan has created a world system that stands opposed to him. That's this word, cosmos. That's not the word used here in our text. The other Greek word that is translated world is the one used here, it's ion. It means, and is often translated, age. So he says, do not be conformed to this age. Now this age could mean this current age, the church age, as opposed to the church. Excuse me, as opposed to the age to come. But this word age, in both Greek and English, often describes the world as it exists at a particular point in time. For example, we talk about in history… The, the Age of Enlightenment, or the Age of Industrialization. In other words, it's a period of time in history with its prevailing mindset, with its worldview, with its perspective about everything. Here's how one academic author explains this word ion. He says, all that mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time current in the world. So think of it as the, the group think of the time period in which we live. The Germans have a word for it, it's zeitgeist. It means the spirit of the age. Oxford English Dictionary defines zeitgeist this way, it is the trend of thought or feeling in a period as reflected in its literature, art, etc. It's the worldview, the prevailing worldview current at any period of time. It's important that you get this in your mind. Every age, including ours, is dominated by certain ideas, and you hear them and see them everywhere. Before we came to Christ, we were all controlled by the mindset of the age. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1, as Paul describes our spiritual death and regeneration from that death, he says in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked He's going to go on to say that before Christ, we were all slaves. We were all slaves. Notice how he puts it in verse 2, you formally walked according to. That could be translated as you walked in lockstep with these forces that were too powerful for you to control. These forces enslaved us. They controlled our thinking. They directed our decisions. They dominated our lifestyles. Notice what they were in the beginning of verse 2 the world, in the second half of verse 2, the devil, and then in verse 3, the flesh. Now notice what he says at the beginning of verse 2. You formally walked according to or in lockstep with, your, your whole lifestyle was in lockstep with, notice how he puts it, the course of this world. The word course is the same Greek word as that in our text, ion, age. Paul means you walked in lockstep with the spirit of the age, with the worldview of your particular time in history. Where does that worldview that dominates a given time in history, where does it come from? Are human beings its source? Absolutely not. The New Testament tells us that Satan controls the ion. He controls the spirit of the age in which we live. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he is the God of this ion, of this worldview that dominates in which we live every day. That means Satan controls and directs the prevailing thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time current in the world. Let this sink into your mind. The devil and his demons actually have established and are controlling the mindset, the worldview of the generation in which we live. It is not neutral. It is controlled by God's enemy. In Romans chapter 12 verse 2, Paul says, don't allow your thinking to be conformed to or shaped by the spirit of the age the prevailing thoughts, philosophies, and opinions of your time. I like the way J.B. Phillips captures it in his paraphrase. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Lying behind Paul's command is the clear implication that our age, like every other age, is dominated by certain prevailing ideas. So what is the mindset of our age? What is the spirit of our age? What is the zeitgeist of the 21st century? What are some of the prevailing ideas and philosophies of our time? I want to take you through just a few of them. This is just a sampling of the major ones kind of put on your classroom hat here and stay with me because you don't really understand what Paul is saying unless you understand the spirit of our age. He's saying, don't be conformed to the spirit of our age. And we sit here as Christians and go, I'm not, until we understand what the spirit of the age is. So let's look at some of the prevailing ideas and philosophies of our time. First of all, there is naturalism. Without question, this is the primary worldview of our day. You see it everywhere. Naturalism can be reduced, as James Sire has, to to several propositions. Here is what naturalism teaches. Let me just give them to you. You will see this, it permeates our culture. Naturalism teaches that, number one, that matter is all that exists and it has existed eternally. Number two, the cosmos is a closed system. In other words, there is nothing supernatural, there is nothing miraculous. Number three, human beings are simply complex machines. Personality is simply an interrelation of chemical and physical properties that we don't yet fully understand. But there isn't an eternal soul. Number four, death is the end. It is the extinction of personality and of individuality. Number five, morality is determined solely by the individual and his circumstances. And number six, history is a linear stream of events caused by cause and effect but without any overarching purpose and plan because there is no purpose or plan. That's the prevailing worldview of our day. Now it doesn't stay in the academic realm. Instead, this worldview filters out in a number of very practical ramifications. Let me give you just a few of the practical ramifications of this prevailing worldview. Number one, anti-supernaturalism. This says all belief in the supernatural is ludicrous and irrational. In a book written near the end of his life, Carl Sagan wrote this, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark, in our obscurity, in all this vastness, there, listen to this, there is no hint that help will come from somewhere else to save us from ourselves. There is no God. There is nothing supernatural. So don't expect God to intervene. What on the other hand does the Bible say? Romans 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. A second practical ramification of naturalism is obvious, Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution tells us the sole reasonable explanation of the origin of the universe and everything in it is Darwinian evolution. Sagan began each episode of his television series, Cosmos, with these words, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Evolution explains the origin of all things. What does the Bible say? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 44:24. 24 I the Lord am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. A third practical ramification of naturalism is moral relativism. The idea that there simply are no moral absolutes. Again, the Scripture is clear, Romans 2.15, the Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. Not only are there moral absolutes, they're written in every heart, the substance of them. And Romans chapter 1 verse 32 says this, of pagans who've never seen the Bible, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, but they not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They know. They know. They know there are moral absolutes. A, f- a fourth practical ramification of naturalism is existentialism. Life is random and meaningless. Again, Scripture couldn't be clearer. God says this in Psalm 33:11, "The counsel of the Lord stands forever." The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Not only is everything not random, God has a meticulous plan and he's working it out generation after generation. Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, my purpose will be established, God says, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. God says, I've got a plan, and I'm going to perform it. A fifth practical ramification of naturalism is what I'll call species equality. The idea that man is simply another animal on par with every other animal. All the species are equal. Practically, this is what is being said. You said, are there people who believe that? Absolutely there are people who believe that. Listen to Ingrid Newkirk. The founder of PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, Ingrid Newkirk wrote this, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, end quote. What that practically manifests itself in is this, man is no more valuable than any other animal. That's what they would say. You know, I saw a video of Ray Comfort, uh, an evangelist, asking college students in California, oh, those Californians, (laughs) asking questions to expose the ethical implications of evolution. And one of the questions was this, if you saw your dog and your next-door neighbor both drowning in a pool, which would you say first? Several students struggled in this video to answer, which frankly in and of itself is disturbing. But a number of the students went on to say that they would rescue their dog before their neighbor. Why? Because they bought into the mindset of the age. Man is just another animal. That dog has every bit as much value as a person. Is that what the Bible says? Of course not. Genesis 127, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Matthew 12, verse 12, our Lord says this, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Don't you dare for a moment think that human beings and animals are on the same par. God made man in his own image, and man is Far more valuable than animals. By the way, Jesus says that about other animals. He says it about birds, etc. Another implication of this species equality is that no sexual behavior is sinful. No sexual behavior is sinful. I mean if animals do it, why can't people? Again, scripture's clear. Ephesians 5, verse 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of sexual sins, he's just listed them in the previous verse, because of these sexual sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. Tom will continue with part six on our next program as he once again takes us to God's Word. We do hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, here's Tom with some closing thoughts.
0: It's so important for you and me to remember that our enemies are not flesh and blood, not the people who live around us. Instead, it's God's enemies, the spiritual beings who are at war with Him, who have created this system, this world system that's anti-God and anti-truth. And so we're to go out into the world, not be afraid of the world, but go into the world with the message of hope, the message of the gospel, the message of a God who can change our thinking because he's changed our hearts. May God give us
1: the grace to carry that message to those around us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at the org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one word That's one word The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.